There, I got my mic on. Good morning. If I don't know you yet, if we haven't met y'all already, uh, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King, and I truly love being here today, being able to bring God's Word to you. And as I look at this camera, I'm imagining you on the other side, and I'm especially imagining our graduating seniors. And I want you to know, seniors, that as I've studied God's Word and uh, been thinking about what I want to say today, what it has for us, I've been thinking about you and what God wants to say to you and has for you. So this really is a charge directly to you, seniors. And uh, if you're not a senior, I don't want you to feel left out. God's Word has something here for all of us, so track with me, pay attention, stay with me even if you're not a senior. Okay, so last Saturday, I ran my first marathon, 26.2 miles, but I don't want you to be too impressed. I ran very, very slowly. And also, don't judge me. Uh, I I ran it alone in an open park, and uh, I didn't want to be, you know, because of COVID around other sweaty people too much. So uh, the the upside of that, the perk of running alone, is I came in very first place. So very happy with that. But as I I went along in my race, as it went on, I noticed that the, the fun to suffering ratio went like this, you know? So at the very start of my race, uh, I was happy, it was exciting, feeling good. And then mile one turned into mile six, 15, 16, 18, 23. (laughs) And the ratio definitely went back the other way. Uh, I started looking less like a happy runner, you know, just kind of doing my thing, and more like a parched wildebeest desperately searching for some water, being chased by very slow lions. Okay, so it wasn't a pretty picture, and the last few miles were definitely more pain than fun. But there was a surprise waiting for me. As I rounded the last turn in the trail, I saw a group of my friends. They were standing six feet apart, but they were smiling and waving at me, holding balloons, signs handmade with my name on them. They were there for me, to cheer me on. My wife had told them that I was running this race, and so they came out to support me. It was awesome. Some of you may feel like you're at mile 25 in a marathon. Seniors, you've come a long way. The trail has not been easy. The past month hasn't been easy. And so today I want to come alongside you at mile 25 and just say, I just encourage you with what Jesus has already won for you, what is already yours in Christ for those who take him at his word. So I want to do that with this section I've fallen in love with from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And I I love how those words apply directly to our lives today. I'm going to read that passage in a moment. Um, But I want us to see in that passage two things, okay? Just two things, that God is our Father and that his world belongs to you. So first, God is our Father. Second, his world belongs to you. Before I go there to that passage, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for showing yourself to us in your word. I ask that you would help us to see you there and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so reading our passage here, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 21. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so that's our passage, and I want to just look quickly back at what we're going to focus on first. It's verse 15. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is telling you that God is your Father. It begins, all who are led by the Spirit of God. And that's tagging a point that Paul's been making throughout this chapter, and, and it's the point of how God unleashes the work of Jesus on people by the Holy Spirit. So the three-on-one God is in full display, and the focus is on God, the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit's just running around, grabbing a hold of God's people and applying the work of Christ to them, claiming them for God. And in this one chapter, it talks about how uh, he sets us free from sin and death, how he lives inside us spiritually, how he leads us, and even how he raises us from the dead, just like he raised Christ from the dead. And then the part, the part that we're looking at, it shows us how when the Spirit grabs a hold of you to apply the work of Christ to you, he makes you able to embrace God from the heart. God has grabbed onto you, and the Holy Spirit makes you able to grab onto him as well. And our passage talks about the very core of what it means to do that, to embrace God. We call God our Father. It says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word, Abba, it's this intensely personal name for Father, kind of like Daddy, which is it's this word, Daddy, it's so personal and vulnerable and tender that as we get older, we usually start calling our dad something else. You know, at least in public, it's a word that we learn first and use most when we're little kids. So I think that if we're going to really know and understand what it means to relate to God as our Father, to call him our Father, we need to look at how little kids relate to their dads. So conveniently, I'm spending a lot of time with two little kids these days, uh, Judah and Juniper, my son and daughter. They're actually turning two next week, and this is a secret, so don't tell them, but I'm going to spell it out for you what we're getting them, their gift. It's balance, B-I-K-E-S, so... Now you know if you can spell what we're getting them. I'm very excited to teach them how to use those. So my kids, they don't call me daddy yet. Their, um, their word for me is dada. And I hear that word a lot. Probably a few hundred times a day. I hear it, uh, they whisper it when they jump on me in the morning to wake me up. Uh, I hear it outside my door when I'm working and they want to play. I hear it when they want something that's way up high and they can't reach it. Sometimes when... Uh, they're happy to see me, and they see me coming home from work. They scream, Dada, at the window. And sometimes they wail my name as they're crying on the floor because I didn't do something they wanted me to do. And if they wake up in the night, terrified for no apparent reason, chances are they're going to be calling my name to come and comfort them and hug them, make them feel safe. 
That's how I want my kids to relate to me. You know, I want them to demand my attention, to be confident in my delight in them. I want them to expect my smile and ask for my help. I want them to jump into my arms when I'm barely even ready to catch them because they can't conceive of me dropping them. I want my kids to relate to me as their father. I don't want them to mainly see me as a teacher, a discipliner, a guide, a provider, a watchful guardian, even though I am all those things for them because none of those capture the love that I have for them. And so I love it when they treat me like their dada, when they expect my smile, demand my attention, when they throw themselves into my arms because I'm their Abba. My love for my kids, it pales in comparison to God's love for you. Let's not complicate things. At the core, being a Christian means believing that Jesus has brought you into the family God and that he into the family of God and that he is your father and that he loves you and embracing him. If you normally think of God as some, you know, in some other way as some other thing, maybe a disapproving judge or a demanding teacher, an absent uncle, he loves you way more than that. So the application here is in your life, when um, a relationship ends or you fail a test or for whatever reason your world feels like it's falling apart because of something you've messed up, know that your father remains full of love for you. You're his child, and he cares about you way more than he cares about what you do or how you mess up. You're his child, and he loves you. But it can be hard to remember that for all of us. You know, it's really hard to remember how much God loves us. And so, the other application is when you move on to campus at A&M or Blinn, Clemson, Dort, UT, Trinity, UVA, or onto your first career, college students, graduates, you need a community of other Christ followers to remind you how much God loves you. Being God's child means having a relationship with the other children of God. So alongside your fraternity or your sorority or your program or your workplace, also find a local church, maybe a campus ministry, and plug in there. Invest your time there. You need that. So first this passage has told us about the Father's love for us, how God is our Father who loves us. And then it it starts talking about heirs, which kind of makes sense because You know, we're familiar with this reality that children usually inherit what belongs to the Father. So that's the next thing I want to encourage you with. God's world belongs to you. So verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So the Holy Spirit living inside each of us Each of God's children bears witness saying, this one is a child of God. This one gets everything that Jesus gets. This one is an heir. When we think about what that inheritance is, okay, when we we see this verse and it says, the Holy Spirit says we're an heir of God, and as we're thinking about, okay, what do we inherit? What are we an heir of? Our minds probably most easily go to spiritual realities, you know, these beautiful things that Christ has won for us, like salvation, justification, glorification. And all that's true. That is what Christ has won for us. But there's more, and those things are not what this passage is talking about. 
Paul's talking about, as soon as he says heirs, he starts talking about the created world that God has made. Uh, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. God's world belongs to you. That's what this is saying. God's world, the thing he created, it belongs to you. That's the inheritance you inherit as his heir. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to bring you into God's family through faith and repentance. And being in God's God's family comes with the family fortune. Don't be mistaken. We're not promised wealth or fame or health or an easy life. Our inheritance is larger. We get the world. The world that God is making new. Every nook and cranny of Houston and wherever you're going next, it belongs to God, and that means it belongs to you. We belong in the world, and it belongs to us. So wherever you're going to be this fall, you know, the college campus, uh, a new job, a new city, that is your turf. God has given those classes, those relationships, those dorm rooms, that workplace to you to steward for him. I wonder what it's like for you to hear that. Okay, it could be uh, kind of intimidating to be given such a massive responsibility, such a valuable gift, like somebody parked a couple of shipping containers of COVID-19 vaccine in your lawn. You know, what do you do with that? What do you do first? But I hope it's exciting for you as well. You know, just think. Every new experience and place that you're going to go, it bears the fingerprints of the maker. Everywhere you leave your fingerprints in this life already bears the fingerprints of the maker, and he made it all for you. Maybe it's kind of hard for you to really feel anything about it. You know, you think about this big concept, reality, and it's just like hard to wrap your mind around and really feel anything about. And I relate to all those. You know, I get all of that. And this passage really helps me when it talks about how the world is eagerly waiting for you and for me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What this is saying is that when sin broke our world, when our sin broke our world, it fell under the curse of God. Every part of the world was affected. Even the dirt itself was cursed, became less fruitful. Now it bears thorns and thistles more readily than crops. Your inheritance has been broken. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he threw the doors wide open on God's restoration project of the world. And so the world is eagerly waiting for you to be revealed as the man or woman God has made you to be. Somehow it knows that as you become that, as you fulfill the potential God has for you, it benefits too. As we become who we were made to be, we bring the rest of the world with us. And so it waits for you. When I was thinking about this passage, um, how it shows us that the world kind of has our name on it and it's waiting for us, I remembered this experience I had growing up. Growing up, we spent most of our Christmases on a mountainside in North Carolina, above the small town of Black Mountain. If any of you have ever driven through Asheville and headed west from there, you've probably driven through it. 
So up on that mountainside, my grandma lived in the cabin that my great-grandfather had built. And I loved just exploring the woods, exploring the cabin, uh, climbing on the rocks, and getting to know what felt like my ancestral home. Some of you know I share the same name as my father and grandfather and great-father were all named Willis. So I kind of had this sense that I belonged there, you know, that I was partly responsible for the long-term welfare of this place. And that was exciting for me. I loved being there. I felt like I belonged to the land and that it belonged to me. And there was one spot that was my favorite spot on the mountainside. It was this old tool shed. And the sun would always hit the front door so that when you opened it, you could kind of see the dust swirling inside in the darkness. And when you walked in, it had this smell of um, kind of machine grease and sawdust. And once your eyes adjusted to the light, I could see all these old tools just lining the walls. And most of them had blades, which was very exciting for me as a boy. There were scythes and axes, uh, shovels, hatchets. And a few years after my grandpa died, I think it was in high school, I found this old axe. It was leaning up against a wall. The blade was dull. The head was totally rusted. Um, the head was like loose on the handle. And the handle was broken. It was the kind of tool that you might just throw away, but I kind of felt like it had my name on it. You know, like the last hands that held it might have been my grandpa's hands. And so I, I took it, I cleaned off the rust, sharpened the blade, I bought a new handle, and I fastened the head securely on it. And that axe is still in my garage today. It cuts good. It's one of my most prized possessions. That is what we're invited to do with our lives. Just like that mountainside is my ancestral home, this world has your name on it. Because God's your father. And what belongs to him belongs to you. That axe was old, broken, uh, damaged, just like our world is, but an ember of the original goodness burns brightly wherever you look and is just waiting for you to walk over and coax it to life. So let's get specific. You know, how do you actually do that with your life? I love this part. We have so much freedom here. The whole creation is waiting. That basically means it's open season, y'all. You want to find a better way to drill oil? Get after it. You want to change hearts and minds with your writing? You can do that. You want to just go and explore wild places just for the fun of seeing them? God loves those places too. He enjoys seeing them too. You don't have to find your purpose. You have a purpose. All you've got to do is decide which corner of the world you're going to focus on. God has specific places and people and experiences marked out just for you because he's your father and he loves you. And so I feel immense hope and joy as I think about each one of you and what God has for you. In Psalm 16, David sings, The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord. That can be your song as well. Your father is wealthy beyond measure. He loves you beyond understanding. And he has made you his heir. So go, claim your inheritance. Let's pray. Father God, we do ask that you would lead each one of us, especially these graduating seniors, into the pleasant places and generous boundary lines of the inheritance we have as your children. 
May we love you as our Father, embrace you as our Father, and trust in the finished work of Christ who has won all these things for us. In Jesus' name, amen.